This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I'd like for you to take God's word and go with me this evening to Mark chapter number nine. Mark chapter number nine. And though the gentleman we're going to read about did not pin the words to the song that Miss Odom just sang, he certainly could have. And perhaps this evening you find yourself in a situation where you need God's divine intervention. I'm glad that we serve a God of miracles. And may the Lord help us to look to him this evening as perhaps we stand in need of a miracle in our life or we are attempting by God's help to minister to those who need a miracle. The greatest miracle is the miracle that God would save us Reveal to us in our sinful condition our need of him. Love us while we were yet sinners. Redeem us and change us and give us an everlasting inheritance in him. As we come to Mark chapter 9, we visited already verses 1 through 13 this morning. And we saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. How that the Son of God upon the mountain, uh, he lifted the veil of his humanity and revealed to his disciples his glory. And they saw him in his eternal glory, the Son of God. And the Father said to Peter, James, and John, hear him. Having seen his glory, it was incumbent upon them now to hear him, for he had something to say. And the message that he delivered to them is that he as the Son of God, was now going to the cross of Calvary. And there he would suffer and bleed and die for the sins of all humanity. On the third day, he would rise again. And this is a difficult subject for the disciples to grasp. And the Lord Jesus is preparing them for this time, and he's also preparing them for a time of ministry after his departure. And so we come to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 14 with that in mind, and we find that Jesus and his disciples who had gone with him to the mount are coming off of the mount. And as they come off the mount in verse number 14, the Bible said, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? One of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead. Insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I'd like for you, if you would, to to notice the phrase that the Lord Jesus speaks as he speaks to the man concerning faith. And he says to him in verse 23, If thou canst believe, notice this please, All things are possible to him that believeth. That's the title of the message this evening. All things are possible to him that believeth. Let's pray together. Our fathers, we come into your presence. We come in great need this evening. Our minds are frail. Our bodies are weak. And we need the Holy Spirit to quicken us and to speak to us so that we might gaze upon thee, that we might have our ears opened, that we might have the eyes of our understanding opened, that we might hear your voice, that we might see you, that we might understand the truths of your word, and that we might put them into practice in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Belief is a determining factor in the lives of men and women. Belief determines our eternal destiny. The Bible says, for whosoever believeth in him should not perish. If I, as a sinner, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that changes my destiny. I am not going to perish. But if I do not believe, this is the condemnation, the Bible says in John chapter 3, The condemnation is that he came and men did not believe upon him. So we're condemned because of our unbelief. We're saved and made righteous because of belief. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul's answer to him was this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so we find that belief is a determining factor in the lives of men and women. It determines their eternal destiny. 
But not only does it determine their eternal destiny, it determines their life with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that though we are saved by faith and made just, that we are to live by faith. We are to live by faith. We find that passage quoted uh, beginning in Habakkuk 2.4. Then Paul repeats it uh, twice more in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, also in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. And then we read it in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 38. The just shall live by faith. So it requires faith, or faith is required rather, for you and I to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and believing are interchangeable terms here. And so we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we put our faith in him. And that faith requires that we look to him. And by looking to him, we are acknowledging something. What we acknowledge, number one, is that he is the son of God. We acknowledge by looking to him, not just simply looking at him, but by looking to him, we acknowledge our dependence upon him. That faith and that belief not only is an acknowledgement of his person, but it is an acknowledgement of our inability. It is a confession of our sin. It is an admission that we need God, and therefore it is an expression of humility as we come before God in dependence of him. We're coming dependent upon him. We have come uh, without any thought that we could rely upon ourselves. We're coming solely to him, looking to him. And this requires humility. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he dealt with his disciples here in the circumstance of this uh, demon-possessed boy and their inability to cast out this demon, he says to them, if you'll notice here uh, in uh, verse number 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Uh, Bring him unto me. He deals with the lack of faith that the disciples have. Now, the disciples know the Lord. They've confessed who he is, but they've been commissioned to serve him. In fact, they've already been sent into the towns and villages to preach the gospel, and they've given a, been given authority by the Lord to heal those who had diseases and to cast out devils. And they have already uh, embarked on that journey. They've returned, having successfully uh, fulfilled the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to them. But now here they are, and they're confronted with a a demoniac boy, a boy possessed by a, a deaf and a dumb spirit, and they cannot cast him out. And when the Lord deals with them, he calls them a faithless generation. Then as we come to verse number uh, 23, uh, having heard the father's request, As the father said to the Lord Jesus, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And so we find here the matter uh, 
uh, is faith. The problem is faith. The possibilities are opened through faith. And as we're going to find out, their prayers, or rather their prayerlessness in this situation, was an expression of their pride that hindered their power in dealing with these demonic spirits. And so I want you to notice some things this evening. I hope you'll write them down. First of all, I want us to look together at the problems of faithlessness. The problems of faithlessness. Now, it's been a glorious time for the Lord and his disciples up on the mountain. But while Peter, James, and John have been on the mountain with Jesus, the nine were down in the valley. And down in the valley, there are problems to be encountered. There is a foe that we all face, and that foe is the devil. And so we see the problems of faithlessness. The first thing we see I want to call your attention to as we think about the problems of faithlessness is really the problem that started the whole thing, and that was the problem of a demon-possessed boy, a demon-possessed boy. We do not know how old he is. Imagine he is a young man, perhaps in his teens, and as he is brought to the Lord, the Lord is going to discover, although he already knew it, he asked for the sake of the crowd who were there, how long has he had this affliction? And uh, the man says, from his childhood. Imagine this, you have a child, you have a son, you're a father, you're a mother, and the precious child that you have is not able to speak. He's given to seizures. And you've determined over a course of time that this is not just a physical, physical condition. And we understand that many do have physical conditions that cause them to have seizures, that cause them at times not to be able to speak or to hear. But they've determined now that this boy has a demonic spirit, and that is verified in the Scripture, that this boy is possessed of a demon. I, I don't know how he encountered this demon. I don't know how early in his life this demon came in to possess him, but I know this. I know that at, from his childhood, he has been oppressed and eventually possessed by this demonic spirit. And this spirit has control over him. I'd like for you to look with me in Ephesians chapter number six, if you'll turn there with me, because we need to understand something about the devil. The Bible tells us that he is our enemy. First Peter chapter five and verse eight, as you're turning to Ephesians chapter number six, first Peter chapter five, the Bible says that our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, during the life of Christ, there was a great manifestation of demonic power. Uh, there was great openness uh, by the devil and his host to oppress the people and to oppose Jesus. And we find Paul, the apostle, as he's writing concerning the devil, he's identifying for us our enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles or the tactics of the devil. For we wrestle not 
against flesh and blood. In other words, as Christians, as believers, our struggle is not with people. Satan would like for us to think that it is. That's why he pits people against one another. In churches, among Christians, and in the world, he is constantly stirring people up against each other. And we can identify the wrong enemy. And Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us understand who our enemy truly is. It is not flesh and blood. It is principalities, powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are facing a satanic foe. It is the devil and his demonic hosts. If you'll look with me in Ephesians chapter number two, Paul explains how Satan is working in the world. In Ephesians chapter two and verse number one, he's speaking to the believers here at Ephesus and he says, and you, that's those who believe, hath he quickened, that word means to be made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's given those of you who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's given you spiritual life. Where in time past, when you were dead, ye walked according to the course of this world. There is a course that the world is on. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who determines the course? Who lays out the course? It is the prince of the power of the air. It is Satan himself, the God of this world. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Do you know that there is a pervasive spirit in this world that works upon the, the hearts and minds of sinners to keep them in darkness, to deceive them, and ultimately to bring destruction to their lives? That's why we see a world and a nation that has turned its back on God and is seemingly becoming more and more depraved by the day. And all reason and all ability to make sound judgment has fallen away. And as we look at what's happening, we wonder how could we have ever gotten here? And if we're not careful, we'll begin to develop an attitude toward the individuals who have fallen prey to the deception of Satan, who are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, who are influenced, oppressed, and sometimes possessed by the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The Bible says in verse 3, among whom we all had our conversation in time past. There was a time when we were in bondage by that spirit. And uh, it revealed itself in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we, when we were in the condition of this boy, when we were on the road to becoming what this boy was, as we find him in Mark 9, when we were dead in sins, he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And he delivered us up out of that. Aren't you glad? He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. No longer are we walking according to the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, now infused with life by the Holy Ghost, filled by the Holy Ghost, we walk according to the law of the Holy Spirit. And we praise God for that. 
And so we come back to this demon-possessed boy. He, he's oppressed and opposed and in his life possessed by a demonic spirit. We understand that Christians today cannot be possessed by a demonic spirit, but they certainly can be oppressed by them and opposed by them. And one of Satan's great tactics is deception. And the Bible tells us that the devil does not come to us with a pitchfork and a horns and a red suit. He doesn't come to scare us. No, he comes rather to deceive us as a minister of light, to present to us something that looks so appealing and something that looks and feels so true, but it isn't true. And how do we discern the difference? We discern it simply by this, the word of God. The Spirit of God will never lead us to do anything in contradiction to the Word of God. And so our experiences are not the test of truthfulness. The Word of God reveals to us the truth. That's why John said in 1 John 4, 1, that we are to try the spirits. We're to try them. And so we see here a demon-possessed boy. Then we see a desperate dad. You see him in verse Number 17, would you turn back there with me to Mark chapter number 9. In verse number 17, the Lord has come down the mountain. He finds the multitude uh, all in a, in, a, in a debate, a discussion, and he says, what's the problem? And one of the multitude in verse 17 answers and says, Master, I brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit. Here is a desperate dad who uh, is burdened for his son. Satan has bound him. Satan is destroying him. Satan is, 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 is keeping him in bondage, and there does not seem to be any answer for this demonic uh, spirit. And so here is a desperate dad crying out in his desperation, Lord, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cast him out. He describes for us what's happening to the boy. Verse 18, wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. Can you hear him? Can you hear him in his moans, in his cries, in his inability to be still can you see him in agony writhing in pain falling down in seizures the bible tells us in verse number 22 and all times it hath cast him into the fire imagine that as they're warming themselves by the fire the boy falls down and rolls into the flames and then he says and into the waters if they're near the waters if they're near the lake the shores of Galilee, what does he do? He falls down, rolls into the lake. This demon is trying to destroy this boy. And Satan hates, hates all of us who are made in the image of God, and he seeks to distort and destroy our lives. And so this desperate dad is crying out, and he says in verse 22, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, there's a hurting world out here. There's a lot of desperate dads. There's a lot of desperate moms. And their lives are, are 
are, 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 are shattered because they're watching their children suffer and they're just praying that someone would care and have compassion and help them. And so we see the problems of faithlessness. Here's a demon-possessed boy and a desperate dad, and you put that together with some disabled disciples. I mean, here the disciples are. They've been given the authority to cast out the demons. They've been given the authority to heal diseases. They know the message of Christ. They can preach that message. They're now alone as the Lord and Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, and so they have a job to do. They have a ministry to conduct. But as they conduct this ministry, we find out they're not successful. He says to the Lord in verse 18, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. They could not. They weren't getting it done. They weren't able to do the job. And Jesus responds in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. What was the problem the disciples experienced? It was their faithlessness. Their faithlessness. They were not operating in faith. They were operating in flesh, but not operating in faith. And so we see here the problems of faithlessness, a demon-possessed boy, a desperate dad, disabled disciples, and then we see the debating crowd. (laughs) That's what led to the debate. Now, when Jesus came off the mountain, he found the crowd debating. Notice it, if you would, please, in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. So here's this crowd. They're gathered in the valley at the foot of the mountain, and they're in an argument. They're in a debate. They're in a discussion. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Here is the debate taking place. The scribes always looking for an opportunity. An opportunity to question the Lord and his disciples. An opportunity to discredit them. Having seen the disciples' inability now to minister to the needs of the boys, but offering no solution of their own, they entered now into a debate with the disciples. They no doubt were talking about theology. They no doubt were talking about the finer points of uh, their theological discussions. But notice that while they were debating, they had no compassion on the man and his son. You know, it's very easy for us to get carried away in debates, to talk about all the things that we believe and all the things that we know, and to really, honestly, to be carried away in, in a proud spirit as if we are the dispensers of truth. We're the only faithful ones to the truth, and we're the only ones who can dispense the truth. And, and so this great debate was raging, and it rages on in our day as we try to debate every question. And there's no doubt that we are called upon to be faithful to the Scripture and to understand the doctrines of the Scripture. But here's the point. They were doing so to the neglect of the need of this dad and his son. 
And I thank God that we have a church that is a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. But may we not rest on the fact that we are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. While the world around us is bound in chains of darkness, oppressed by the devil, and we do nothing. The sole purpose of our existence is to glorify God and to preach his gospel in all the world. And so whether it be in the nursing home, as we heard earlier this evening, or whether it be on a bus route, or on a college campus, or in a place of business, we have a ministry to conduct. There is a God who loves those people. And while we might try to tell them what they should believe and what they need to do to clean up their lives, what they really need are Christians who are walking with God, filled with the Holy Ghost, full of faith, who will have compassion upon them. I grew up in a very conservative area. I was raised in a Bible-believing church. I have a very conservative mindset. I remember when I was a student at the University of Tennessee encountering uh, some of the left-wing protesters on our campus, and uh, I just had a disdain and a contempt for them. And I have continued at different times to have a disdain and contempt for people who deny the existence of God, who live in a way that is totally out of line with what God has set forward in his word. Who believe that human life is not precious and that we were not created in the image of God, but that we somehow sprang forward out of nothing. And we're no better than animals. In fact, many of them hold to this thought that animals are even more uh, meaningful and more valuable than we are as humans who practice lifestyles that make me very uncomfortable, who have an appearance that uh, is certainly not the norm and that draws attention to themselves and identifies them very clearly in what they believe and how they live their lives. And what I have found over the years is that as I have grown closer to the Lord, I do not have the same disdain for those people. I do not look at them with contempt. No, I, I, I have an affection for them. There's no value in me. There's nothing in me that makes that possible. Let me tell you what it is. It is the Holy Spirit conforming me to the image of Jesus, helping me to understand that not everyone's had the same opportunity I've had that there are people who are lost in the darkness of sin and bound by chains of the devil, and they do what they do naturally, not knowing the difference. And therefore, it is my responsibility to have compassion on them, to love them, to understand that Satan hates them and that he desires to destroy their lives. And see, while the crowd is debating, the boy is wallowing on the ground in great need.
problems of faithlessness. Now I want you to see the second thing. The possibilities of faith. Finding no help with the disciples or anyone in the crowd, this man, when he sees Jesus, turns to him. And he says to him in verse number 22, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He wasn't expecting much, was he? He really wasn't. If you can do anything... He didn't have a lot of confidence and understanding completely in who the Lord was and what his ability was. But he knew when he saw Jesus that he saw somebody who cared about him. Jesus always looks at us with love and compassion. The Bible speaks often of his compassion and how he was moved with compassion. And when we are filled with love and the Holy Ghost, people that we encounter since that. I remember riding on the plane with a young man and as I talked to him, I understood that he was in a world of confusion. And he said to me, he said, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I said, yes, how'd you know? He said, because I can talk to you. I can talk to you. Now you don't have to be a Christian for somebody to be able to talk to you. I mean a pastor, excuse me. I'm, I'm getting Dan's disease now, aren't I? <laughs> Brother Gamble's still not here, is he? <laughs> you don't have to be a pastor to be able to talk to somebody. You just have to be a Christian who cares. And you have to love people. You have to have a heart filled with compassion. And this man sensed that Jesus was filled with compassion. Years ago, if I'd been on the plane with that boy, I'd have told him all the things he needed to do to straighten up. But that's not, that's not the message. The message is get to Jesus. The message to the father is get your son to Jesus. He cares. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my griefs. And so he says, Lord, if thou canst do anything. Now, notice how the Lord responded. He responded not necessarily by being insulted. You know, here, here he's speaking to the God of the universe. Remember the God who has just unveiled his glory on the mountain? The God who spoke this world into existence? The God who cast the devil and those demons, those angels, those fallen, he's the one who cast them out of heaven? And the man says to him, if you can just do anything, but he doesn't respond to him as a man who's received an insult. He responds to him in love, and he says to the man in verse 23, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. If thou canst believe, what is the object of our faith? The object of our faith is Jesus. The object of our belief is Jesus. People say, well, you need to have faith. Or you need to believe. Well, what do you need to believe? What do you need to have faith in? He's a person of faith. Well, that doesn't mean anything unless he is a person who has put his faith in Christ. He is the object of our faith. And the Lord is calling this man to acknowledge who he is. He's calling him to confess to him that he's the son of God 
And he is asking this man to express his faith in the person of Jesus Christ, that he has the power and ability to overcome Satan. And he says, all things are possible to him that believeth. Now, I love, I love the honesty of this man, don't you? Look at it, please. Verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears. <laughs> tears, no doubt, motivated by what he'd seen in the life of his son. Tears motivated and falling because of the desperation he had for his son. And tears falling because he recognized his own inability to trust God completely. He just had a little bit of faith. Just had a little bit. Notice what he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. What an honest confession, right? Here we see the cry of a humble father who acknowledges that there's nothing he can do to help his son. Therefore, he calls upon the Lord in full dependence upon his ability to meet the need of his boy. And he says to him, my faith is small. My faith is weak. Would you help my unbelief? Have you ever been there? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Do you know that every time God calls us to take a step of faith, we always have that faith accompanied in our hearts and minds by doubt. God impresses upon us the need to witness to somebody and our flesh tells us, oh, God can't use you. God impresses upon us to take a step in obedience to him and then our flesh and the world and the devil will say to us, oh, you know that's not going to work. What if it doesn't work? What's going to happen to you then? You see, the enemy of faith is fear, and we always have fear present with us when we express our faith. And this father is calling upon the Lord to aid him in his little faith. Notice, if you would, if you'll turn there with me in Matthew's record of this, in Matthew chapter 17, when the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples. Because not only is he interested here in the faith of, of the Father, but he's interested in the faith of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 20, the disciples, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, ask in verse 19, why could we, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus in verse 20 said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, now notice this, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. You see, it doesn't require much faith, does it? The mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, God said, the Lord Jesus said, If you have just that little amount of faith, I can honor that little amount of faith. I can aid that little 
amount of faith and I can reward that little amount of faith. And so he did. Go back to Mark 9. You see, the very expression of this man's lack of faith and the doubts that accompanied the little faith that he had was an expression of his humility and dependence upon the Lord in crying out to him, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here we have an expression of faith in the admission of the lack of his faith. You see that? And so Jesus responding to his faith in verse 25, when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit saying unto him, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee come out of him and enter no more into him. (laughs) He didn't just cast him out. He said, this boy's off limits to you. You're not coming back. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead insomuch that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Can you imagine the joy in that father's heart? The horror when he thought his boy had died, but the joy when he saw his son was okay. No longer possessed by a deaf and dumb spirit, no longer oppressed, no longer torn, no longer to have seizures and to be cast into the fire, into the water. His life forever changed. We see the possibilities of faith. By the way, this this passage is not a license to us to say that anything that we need, uh, if we just have enough faith, we'll get it. That's a dangerous teaching. We find that the Lord is dealing with this situation with this young man who is bound by the devil. And let me tell you, you have needs and you have burdens. Some of you are burdened for your own children. I heard a preacher say recently, nothing will keep you on your knees more than your kids. The greatest thing we can do for our kids is pray for them. The greatest thing we can do for our lost coworkers is pray for them. The greatest thing we can do for our neighbors is pray for them. And God will honor that faith as we pray. And that leads me to my third point this evening. Uh, Not if we have looked at the problems of faithlessness and the possibilities of faith, God can do all things. The third thing we note is the prayers of faith. Look at it in verse 28. I said we'd come to this discussion, and we have. After the miracle has taken place, after the boy and his father have gone home rejoicing, after the crowd has seen again the power of the Lord Jesus demonstrated, the disciples are now with the Lord, and they're bothered as they should be. And notice the question, verse 28. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. 
The Lord Jesus draws a vital connection here between the life of faith and the life of prayer. The life of faith and the life of prayer. We, as God's people, are to be praying people. Jesus said that his house should be called the house of prayer. We are his temple. He inhabits us. We no longer have to go to a building. Now, we meet together as the assembly of God. There's nothing magical about this building. I'll tell you what is powerful, however, is when this assembly of church members who know the Lord Jesus, who've been placed in the body of Christ, assemble together as a corporate group. We, as lively stones, now form the house of God together. And as we go about our business throughout the week, as we live our lives day by day, we must understand that we are the temple of God. And the Lord said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, the great sin of prayerlessness is pride. And the problem with the disciples here is that when they're faced with this boy, they said, no problem. We've got this. The Lord's given us authority. We've cast out demons a thousand times. Maybe it wasn't a thousand, but you get the drift, right? We've done all this before. Sure, I can teach that lesson. I've done that before. Sure, I can sing that song. I've done that before. Sure, I can talk to my neighbor about the Lord. I've done that before. Sure, I can preach that sermon. I've done that before. And we see the sermon delivered, the song sang, the lesson taught, the witness given, but nothing changes. We can't get victory over the devil. We're not seeing any work of God and the Holy Spirit. And there's no doubt that we're called on to labor and be patient and wait upon the Lord and let him do his work. But here's what we learn. We cannot do it apart from full dependence upon God. And when we pray, we express to God our dependence upon him. It's not like we can just pull ourselves off the phone charger and decide we're going to serve God this week. No, we have to live a life of communion with God, independence of him in an expression of our humility. And as we pray, what does God do? He brings us into alignment with him. Prayer is not to persuade God to do something that he doesn't want to do. Prayer is to calibrate us in line with what God wants done. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts. We begin to pray as he would have us to pray. Adrian Rogers said the prayer that gets to heaven is the one that starts in heaven. We are to pray in agreement with the will of God. We know it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we should pray for the salvation of the lost. We should pray that the the brothers and sisters in Christ would grow and be edified in the Lord and that they would increase in knowledge and wisdom. These are the prayers that we're to pray. And we're to pray and seek God's divine aid. We're to seek the power of the Holy Spirit 
And we minister in that power. We sing in the choir in that power. You can't just dial up a song and say, this is going to be a blessing. No, you have to commune with God. You need God's presence and God's power. And then God can touch the thing and God can use the thing to encourage and strengthen his people. But we better not ever get in the performance trap. Because once we get there, we'll become prayerless people. And prayer brings us into a line with God's purpose, and prayer unleashes his power. Why could we not cast him out? Because we're not praying. You see that problem that you have? Maybe God's instrument that he's using to teach you to pray. And may the Lord help us. All things are possible to him that believeth. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used his word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.